I want to take a moment before the show to let all of you know about a new horror anthology that I just read and really enjoyed. The book is called Shredded, and uh, that title is a double entendre because this is a collection of body horror stories about sports and fitness. So double meaning of shredded there. Now, the stories are awesome. Uh, These include pieces about a murdery yoga cult, also why you really shouldn't use performance-enhancing drugs, and also why you definitely should wear a helmet. I really hope that someday we'll have an opportunity to cover at least one of the stories in Shredded over on Elder Sign someday, but until then, I hope that you'll grab a copy for yourself. I've put a link in the show notes to make that easy for you, but of course you can also order the book from your local bookshop. Again, the book is called Shredded, and I hope you grab a copy today. Hello, and welcome back to Hanging Out with the Dream King, a Neil Gaiman podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brent Helt. In this episode, we'll discuss Sandman number 26, Seasons of Mists, Chapter 5, cover date of May 1991. Uh, the art on this one, pencils by Kelly Jones, inker George Pratt, colorist Daniel Vazo, Todd Klein as letterer, uh, Alisa Quitney, uh, recently a guest of this podcast, uh, making her debut as assistant editor, and Karen Berger as editor. Yeah, it's really exciting to see Elisa's name here in print for the first time, though. That's going to be a mainstay as we continue on with The Sandman. And yeah, if people haven't listened to that episode, that's uh, something we did, oh, I guess probably about nine or 10 months ago. Elisa was kind enough to come on the show and, and talk with me about her career as a DC Comics editor and writer and uh, talk about some of her new projects as well. And uh, we also talked about uh, a science fiction short story that she really likes by the, the really great uh, late Golden Age early new wave science fiction writer, Robert Sheckley. So I encourage people to go back in time and check that out if you if you missed that one. But let's turn our attention back to the dreaming here. And in fact, really, I mean that doubly so, because last time we took a little detour to see what's going on on Earth now that hell is closed. But this time we are back where we left off in the dreaming. The diplomats have mostly arrived and uh, and dream is dealing with that. And so this issue opens with an establishing shot of Dream's palace in the distance. There are two hooded figures in the foreground. And as these figures approach the palace, it turns out that they are fairies. And so, as we promised back when we covered Lords and Ladies by Terry Pratchett, we now have fairies back in the Sandman. And these fairies are the ambassador Clurican and his sister Nuala. They are a little bit late, and so the dinner party that we were promised two issues ago before we took our little detour, that dinner party is already happening as they arrive. But as Dream escorts them to that part of the palace, Clurican uses the private moment to beg Dream to leave hell empty. What he wants is for Dream to not give hell to anyone who's come here to beg him for it. And the reason for this is that, and and I'm going to quote here, By ancient compact, fairy must pay the tend, our tithe, to hell, every seven years. We are forced to sacrifice to them nine of our wisest, our most beautiful. And it seems then that this is something that they would have to continue doing 
no matter who owns hell, right? That this is not an agreement that they had with Lucifer, some kind of contract they had with Lucifer. It's a contract that goes with the deed to the property. And so, Brent, I've got to do something here that I have not yet done on the entire run of this podcast, which is to ask you to put on your law school hat here so that we can talk about this. And the the question that I've got is, is are the fairies then just presuming that if Dream has the deed, Dream simply won't enforce this contract? So I'm not offering actual specific legal advice in this case. <laughs> right. Disclaimer. <laughs> but it would be a strange contract because it's not – I mean, maybe it's just with some kind of third party because it's not specifically with Lucifer. It's not with Dream. And so instead, it's a contract in which the, the fairies made with whomever – that they, as long as hell is open, would probably must be part of the way it's written. They have to put people there, or maybe it's just they have to put people there, uh, send people to hell. But if hell is closed, they can't send people, and therefore, you know, that they'll be prepared to do so. Um, I guess my question in this is, uh, as long as hell remains closed, do they nonetheless still have to be identifying who those individuals would be, the 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 fair folk who would have to go to hell. And then if hell reopens, do they have to then provide um, enough people to catch up to what they should have been tithing this whole time? Um, and I'm not sure. Right. Would there be back pay on this? Yeah. Or just like the the most like, uh, you know, talk about the guillotine hail holding over your head. If you're a you know member of the fair folk and you're just like, guess what? You've been picked. And then every day you wake up to find out is hell open today? Because if so, I got to pack my bags. And if not, I get one more day not in hell. I, I really want to know the answers to these questions. I mean, I think something that neither you nor I and probably no one else was longing for back in the, the 90s was a uh, a Vertigo uh, colon law school comic book series. But actually, I find myself now super interested in that. I would love to know all about how law works. And, and actually, I mean, we're making light of it. But of course, law in the sense of rules really actually matters to the story of the Sandman. I mean, certainly we're getting it in this scene. We've experienced and encountered some of it before. And when we get to the real uh, climax of the entire Sandman run, it's all going to hinge actually on laws and and how they're enforced and uh, you know, how they're interpreted and so on. So yeah, there 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 is some of that here. I will note here that Leslie Klinger in the annotated Sandman does um, regarding this uh, story of the fair folks tithe that they must give uh, notes that tithe is a Scots word meaning tithe and uh, notes that in the story of Tamlin told by Thomas the Rhymer. In the 13th century, there was an explanation of this specific tind that had to be given. Klinger goes on to suggest that perhaps this is because the fair folk predate humanity or perhaps because they are fallen angels themselves, um, which in some ter interpretations of what the fairies might be, they are angels that have not fully fallen, but are not uh, – act so they're not actually – uh, condemned to hell, but they're not um, allowed in heaven anymore, or the Silver City. And so that is kind of the situation going on, um, is kind of what Leslie Klinger uh, debates about a little bit. I will 
explicate that a little bit more. The, Thomas the Rhymer did not write the the ballad Tam Lin. Thomas the Rhymer is another subject of another ballad. These ballads, uh, these Scottish ballads, are uh, from early modernity. Most of them, the forms of them that we have that were collected in the 19th century, mostly date to around 1700. These were collected by a scholar, a folklorist named Child, and so these are often known as uh, Child uh, ballads, though they themselves don't necessarily have anything to do with children. It's a very confusing name. It's just the the name of the person who collected them together. And yeah, we do have this idea of the 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 tend, which actually it does refer to something that is a tithe. The word itself literally means tenth, though, which is what you're going to tithe. Uh, tithe here being a uh, a medieval concept of uh, one of the forms of rent that you would pay to your landlord um, or or to your uh, you're just your lord in general in a kind of uh, feudal uh, vassalage relationship. But this idea of the fairies paying this to hell every seven years does show up in two of these early modern ballads. One of them is the Ballad of Tam Lin, of which there are uh, three different forms that have this in it. And then there's also Thomas the Rhymer, which I think is more famous. But then it also actually also shows up in the records, like the legitimate court records that we have of an early modern witch trial in which the woman who's being put on trial as a witch, her defense is not, I didn't do any of that stuff you're accusing me of. It's, I'm not a witch. It's that I was uh, myself bewitched by fairies, and it all had to do with them trying to gather up humans to send uh, for this tithe, which uh, turns out that at least in some of the Scottish lore about this, this is what changelings are for. This is why you swap out fairy and human babies is you leave your fairy babies with the humans, you take the human babies, let them grow up in fairy, and you send them to hell so that fairies are not actually being sent to hell. None of that is explicated, though, in any of these sources. I mean, these are actually always just throwaway lines in them. They're not really explained in in any, in any particular detail. They're just kind of uh, almost like background details to add some flavor to the world of the story, where the story itself is really about something very different. And actually, I have been reading uh, some mid-20th century British folklore scholarship by uh, Catherine Briggs, who was the, the president of the Folklore Society for a long time. And she also talks about this tradition of thinking of fairies as fallen angels who simply didn't fall all the way. And where that matters, like where that would actually show up then in this idea of there being a, a tithe is that they are still under the dominion or, or lordship of Satan and therefore still owe him this feudal tithe, even though they themselves are not located in hell. And this also goes hand in hand, actually, with another tradition uh, that really we get in some English folklore, but more of it in, uh, well, I maybe even shouldn't say folklore so much as literature, but even really more in Scottish literature, is the idea of the fairy realm actually as being the land of the dead. And so it overlaps with hell there. And I think that's a place where you can see some amalgamation of of Christian thinking with uh, Celtic religion thinking as well, the sort of blending of those two sort of mythos systems there in that way. And uh, and that's very cool. This is actually not an idea, I should say, that's original to Briggs, by the way. She is actually uh, talking about um, another scholar from the 
19th century, whose name is uh, is Hazlitt there. And presumably that's ultimately where Klinger got that as well. But yeah, I thought that was very cool. And I was actually really excited about this because there's a novel called Thomas the Rhymer by Ellen Kushner. I don't know if you ever read that book, Brent. I mean, it, it's from exactly the same time. I think it's a 1991 publication date as well. Neil Gaiman and Ellen Kushner are good friends. I have actually read the novel that she wrote about Thomas the Rhymer that is based in part on the Scottish ballad tradition, but then also there's uh, a medieval romance uh, about Thomas the Rhymer as well, a late medieval romance about Thomas the Rhymer. And she's turned all of that into a really great fantasy novel. And I covered that over on ATAS. And one of the things I was posing to listeners actually as a question is, what's going on with all the hell imagery in Kushner's version of Fairyland here? And uh, so actually having read uh, this book by Briggs uh, this week was actually really helpful. I have now solved that uh, that problem for myself. I had just not realized that. But at any rate, I imagine that this bit here, the point I'm really trying to get at is that I imagine that this bit here came from a conversation that, that Gaiman was having with Ellen Kushner right around this time, a conversation about Scottish ballads that I don't know, maybe they were talking about that at a con or something like that. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if that were the case. And speaking of Catherine Briggs, in High Bender's uh, Sandman Companion, there's an interview with Neil Gaiman in which Neil Gaiman uh, explains a little bit more about the character of uh, Clericon, in which Neil says, quote, Clericon isn't really his name, by the way. It's an Irish word that represents a type of fairy like Leprechaun, except instead of pots of gold, a Clericon is primarily interested in wine. According to Catherine Briggs's Encyclopedia of Fairies, a Clericon does things like scare dishonest servants who steal from their master's wine cellar. And sometimes he makes himself so objectionable that the owner decides to move, but the Clericon pops into a cask to move with him. Uh, Highbender notes here that uh, Neil Gaiman uh, laughed after saying that bit. Uh, the Clericon in this story is definitely a drunk. Um, and then he talks about what we'll see about him doing in the next issue a little bit. So um, I think that that's kind of fun that, again, Clericon here being his name that he's using is his position, not really his like true name, if you will. Similarly, Dream or Lord Shapers, he's referred to here. Again, this is his position. And I mean, it's the case with most of the Endless is that the names weren't really so much names as they are their duties, right? Yes, exactly. And and of course, also, right, we know that in this world, in this speculative world, knowing someone's real name gives you power over them. Uh, and so, you know, you don't want to tell anyone that. And uh, yeah, I mean, this is, I think, true as well, even when we, and, and almost certainly we talked about this when we covered A Midsummer Night's Dream, because, you know, we all call that character Puck, but actually that's what he is, not who he is, right? That's a type of fairy that he happens to be, right? He actually has a proper name, but, you know, just we don't actually call him that. Uh, I'm super excited that that Gaiman actually knows the work of Briggs because I just took a stab here when I was thinking about what fairy lore, what fairy scholarship ought I read, and I decided not to get something that's uh, fairly contemporary to us as we record this and thought, let me take a look at something that's really classic from the mid-20th century that is probably the sort of thing that Gaiman 
would have consulted if he were consulting anything. So I feel vindicated in that uh, <laughs> in that choice. And just to let people know what book it is that I'm actually referring to here by Catherine Briggs, because she has a long bibliography. Uh, I don't have that encyclopedia of uh, fairies uh, that Gaiman mentioned, though that will soon be rectified, because obviously one of us needs to have that now if we're going to continue uh, talking about fairies and Neil Gaiman, and we are. But the book that I've got by Briggs is called The Fairies in Tradition and Literature. And this is actually a follow-up study to one that she did uh, that was specifically about Shakespeare and fairies, Shakespeare, his contemporaries, and his immediate successors, and what fairy lore was like circa uh, circa 1600, I should say. So the book that I'm looking at here is called The Fairies in Tradition and Literature and is basically bringing us up to the 20th century from that point. And actually, I think it's it's, it's quite interesting. I didn't read the whole thing yet, but uh, it's pretty cool. An interesting thing that Leslie Clare notes uh, regarding the Clericon is that in the original printing of the issue, when he first is interacting with Morpheus, instead of using the word sire, he uses the word sirrah. I might be mispronouncing that, but S-I-R-R-A-H, which is a term of contempt. Um, apparently, later in issue 31 in the Letters in the Sand, which is the um, – uh, letters to the editor that uh, fans could write in. A reader called out this point to the editors, and the editor's response was, quote, out of nervousness, uh, the clericon substituted the appropriate title Sire with the highly inappropriate Sirrah. The Sandman, understanding the gaffe to be unintentional, overlooked the slight. Um, however, in the and he notes in the absolute edition, they decided to fix uh, Clericon's speech. Actually, even before the absolute edition, in the first um, collected version of this um, Seasons of Mists, which is the first actual hardbound collection um, that I have a copy of, I checked and it is fixed in that. So it looks like only in the original issue and the original printing um, is there this bit where Clericon makes the gaff and then. For whatever reason, the decision was made either by the editors or by Neil or in consultation with each other, perhaps, probably the uh, that was corrected for all subsequent printings, it looks like. Yeah, that's awesome. I certainly was reading in the volume that I have had since the 90s and did not notice that. I think that that would have jumped out to me. So that's very cool. Yeah, this word uh, sura is, you know, we look at that, I think we all tend to just think of that as kind of a fancy and uh, antiquated way of saying sir as like a, a evocative, a form of address, but but it is not. It is definitely an, an, an insult to to say that to somebody. But I think that's a, a common mistake to make, but uh, also one, I guess, that you want to correct. I want to know who it is that uh, that wrote that letter. Do you, do you have access to that? I don't, because um, I uh, don't currently have all of my individual issues, and I'm pretty sure that I did not start getting individual issues until after the Seasons of Mist run, so I do not know. Uh, if any of our listeners do have access, you can uh, check to see at least uh, whatever gnome de plume was given um, to that letter. Uh, to find out who eagle-eyed, what eagle-eyed reader found that. It might even be one of our <laughs> listeners who uh, will, at this point, chime up and let us know. Well, that's what I really mean when I say I want to know who it is. That's that's what I'm really <laughs> hoping for. And so, yes, dear listener, if that was you, let us know. We've never given out awards or anything before, but I think we could we could make one for that. I think that's uh, that's well well deserving of it. Well, let's uh, let's get to this dinner party, Brent. And Gaiman uses the. 
arrival at the dinner party here by Clericon and Nuala as a really good opportunity to introduce us, the readers, again, to all of the deities who are here in the dreaming to ask Dream for the key to hell. This is, of course, especially useful because we've now had this interlude with the school story since we were last in the dreaming. And so it's it's good to get reintroduced. And uh, so I think, Brent, let's just take Gaiman's cue here and we'll just do the same. And so who we have here present in the dreaming to beg for hell or ask for hell, I suppose, bid for it. We have some figures from ancient Norse religion, and that's Odin, Loki, and Thor. Then we have some figures from ancient Egyptian religion, although in this issue, we really just see Bast, the cat goddess. We also have emissaries from Chaos and from Order. Also here is Susano Wo from the Shinto Pantheon, though he is here by himself. That's a point he's going to emphasize later. And then there is a contingent of demons led by Azazel. And then also, and, and finally, are the two angels, Duma and Remiel. And yeah, I mean, we can see the narrative strings here, right? We know why this has been written this way. It's to reintroduce us to the characters. Nonetheless, Neil Gaiman is really good at this sort of thing. And so he's he's able to hide the strings here. He makes this scene really funny so that we don't notice that it's really here to serve as exposition. And there are actually a number of gags going on throughout the dinner party. And I, I just wondered, Brent, which of them was your favorite? I think probably the uh, the... Princess Jemmy uh, is going <laughs> to recurringly be my favorite throughout. Um, and I mean, one of the things I love about the the gags you reference, Glenn, is that every, each of them is getting clearly what they want to eat at this time. Um, and Princess Jemmy uh, had a bunch of ice cream and has asked for more ice cream. And there's a shot of her with an overflowing, heaping sundae, but also has a plate of cookies in front of her that she just is going to have nothing but sugary, sweet uh, food. And that is what she is consuming, um, which I think is just great. So I think that's my favorite. Which which is your favorite? Well, I've got to comment on Princess Jemmy here because something I really enjoyed about the art of, of this, the way that the cookies are depicted, is that she has taken bites out of multiple cookies but seemingly <laughs> finished none of them. And uh, uh-huh. uh, I, I feed meals to a two-year-old every day, <laughs> multiple times a day. And this is definitely a thing that little kids do. He, you know, I cut his sandwich up into smaller bites, his quesadilla, whatever, give him a bunch of cookies or crackers. That's how he'll do it. Bites out of all of them. And then like one bite, set it down, take the next one, one bite, set it down, which is just not a thing I would ever have noticed. Not a detail I would ever have noticed before. But uh, this art is spot on. It's a real reality effect for sure. Well, and I think particularly the juxtaposition of that with when we see Lord Kilderkin, the Lord of Order, who again is an empty wooden box, who just has his servant just spoon all of the food off the plate directly into it because (laughs) the highest state of order is just that the plate should be completely clean. Yes. Yeah. That's also really brilliant. I I think though, probably my favorite thing, my favorite gag here during the dinner party is actually the entertainment, which is a a gag with Cain and Abel and and also Gregory, I should say. And Cain here is doing a magician's routine and he is going to saw Abel in half. And of course, if this is a real stage magician, then we know that there's some kind of trick or illusion here, but not in this case. Cain's actually just going to saw his brother in half because he'll be reconstituted instituted later, you know, supernaturally, because that's how it works. And as we know from very early on in Preludes and Nocturnes, Cain is constantly murdering Abel. They are reliving the first story over and over again. And wow, Cain is just uh, 
sadistic here, but Gaiman writes this routine that he's doing, the, the sort of bit that he's doing as someone who has really enjoyed stage magic in his life, which you know we know that is true of Neil Gaiman, and it, it's well done. Yeah, I mean it's a fun but terrifying um <laughs> interpose and it's it's very much done for laughs but it is really horrifying what is going on to Abel at this point and the implication also is that he makes sausages out of uh, him so that's something else and it explains why Princess Jemmy would find such delight in it. Right, yeah, Princess Jemmy's a huge part of that of, of that gag. She keeps asking questions about things that we are not seeing, but this is how we we learn some of these things. And yeah, she calls she calls Abel Mr. Screamy, which you know seems kind of cute, except that actually, no, I mean what it tells us is that although we don't see it, that while he was being sawed in half by his brother, Abel was screaming in sheer horror and and pain. And uh so yeah, it's a real real bit of dark comedy here. I do want to note also, I mean, you're right to say that um, the parties that you lim- that mentioned were the parties that largely we see in the comic with particular lines. Uh, however, we do see that um, Anubis and Besh are still there. We saw them arrive with Bast a couple issues prior. Um, Anubis doesn't say anything, but we see him eating a heart um, at one point when Loki is looking around. Um, and Besh uh, tells Bast to ignore Thor when he is trying to... Uh, drunkenly flirt with her and we also have some great shots um when we see the angels of kind of a crowd of people including some of the same you know perhaps arthurian as well as other random people in the background um again reminding us of the crowd shots we got two issues prior when we were last here in the dreaming that we're focused on just these specific envoys. However, Dream is dealing with entourages from a number of different path- pantheons who are coming seeking the same thing. And I think as we get into the discussions he has with each of these, and he talks about the long night he has ahead, the implication in my head canon is that he is having dozens more of these meetings that we are just not a party to seeing exactly what goes back and forth because they're not as significant to elements of the, the the story in this particular issue or in this particular collection or in the arc of Sandman as a whole. No, I think that must be exactly right. And we even see some other people sitting around the table as well who uh, are not identified at least, you know, in in the text of the story itself, but but but, but they are definitely there. There's a there's a person with a wonderful helmet that reminds me of Death Dealer from Frank Frazetta's um images before and then there's another one who I think might be Merlin with the Spangly hat. It's definitely some kind of a um, stereotypical magician. Yeah, we we speculated last time that 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 was going to be Merlin, and I think now that we actually get a little more detail on the hat, that it's definitely got to be Merlin. But yeah, I love this this night. I mean, this is obviously like a spectral night. I mean, frankly, I just think it's the Witch King of Angmar. Um, he's <laughs> got like a zombie hand as a instead of a plume on on the, the helmet. Just has like a bowl of candles in front of him, like lit candles. <laughs> it's uh, it's really cool. But uh, yeah, in my head canon that is the the witch king of angmar though again if uh, anyone in the audience has any 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 idea who that actually is specifically i would love to hear that this that same panel also shows us the wait staff here at this dinner party and these are humans who are asleep and dreaming and the dream that they are having is that they are here waiting on all of these people at this dinner party and they have a little bit of a a story together where there there are two characters a man and a woman and the the man 
It feels like he knows who the woman is, but can't place her. And he keeps asking her, trying to figure out what her name is. And also, I think, even a little bit of what's going on and so on. There's no resolution to this, though. But it feels like there's supposed to be, like something is happening here. And I wonder, Brent, either do you... Do you know who they are? Are we supposed to know who they are? Or do we meet them again in the future? I don't think we necessarily meet them again. I think a couple things going on is going back to the first issue of Sandman, when he finally escapes, we see that he will take things from people's dreams, but also somewhat use them as well while they're transiting his land. Um, So here, making them be the help staff makes sense. Also, just the fact that I, I think a lot of it's just you have those crazy dreams where like you're at a party with a bunch of mythological gods, but you're having to serve them food and in a hurry. And for both sides, like there's the, there's a man who's just like, I have to serve these people, but there's a beautiful woman. And I think I know her and I, I, I want to make sure I know her and I want to, you know, make sure I get her name so I can get in touch with her. And then there's the woman who is maybe interested in the guy, maybe not, <laughs> it could be read as just like, I just need to deliver this stuff. There's this guy who keeps accosting me <laughs> um, as I'm trying to do this crazy, like I need to deliver this food to Thor going on. But it, it's not clear exactly what's going there. But I don't think we, we've seen them. I don't think we've seen them before. And I don't think we've seen them again. I think they're probably just two random mortals who are stuck in this. Although I think that this was a dinner party that I would, wouldn't mind if I was enlisted next time I was asleep to help, uh, deliver food to all of these guests. I think that'd be kind of a, a fun thing to experience. I wouldn't necessarily want to be there for the entertainment part of the dinner, um, to see Abel sawed in half. I think that would be terrifying even to just watch, but, uh, I wouldn't mind having to carry plates back and forth, um, to Bast and Thor and Odin and, Odin appears to be part of the Clean Plates Club, unless he's just drinking wine, by the way. No, I think that that's right. In fact, there are there are a number of characters who are not eating. Loki is one of them. I think I think Odin also is is not, though Odin does mention the wine. And then, of course, we have Clericon, who is just drinking wine. In fact, orders a bottle of wine with a glass, then says, never mind, hold the glass and make it two bottles. And that's uh, <laughs> uh, so great. Yeah, Neil Gaiman just totally leaning into the the lore of the Clericon there. Uh, absolutely, absolutely awesome. I love, yeah, what, I love what he does with the fairies in this issue. And of course, uh, we won't spoil anything, but we'll, we will see more of that in the future as well. Well, another thing that Gaiman was doing during the party was having every single group ask Dream for a private meeting tonight to take place before the public hearing on the deed to hell that's going to occur tomorrow. Uh, well, not I should be clear, not every group, because the angels do not do this. And in fact, we also will not see the angels again in this issue. But at any rate, the point is that Dream agrees to all of these meetings, and I think that everybody has the impression that they're the only ones getting you know, a special meeting with Dream, which is also a nice touch because it's just clearly not true. Uh, but I think, Brent, let's just go through them. Uh, we can talk about them as we go. And, and for me, this was the real substance of the, the issue, and I'm, I'm actually really excited to talk about these negotiations, because even though each of these takes up one or maybe two pages, there's a lot of, of story density here. The other thing I love about these is Dream has tailored his throne room where he's meeting each of the guests 
to a style that would make the guest feel most comfortable. Uh, on the one hand, if that's a nice way of looking at it, the flip side of that is he is setting it up in the way that makes him still look as powerful as he can, but in the context of the particular, you know, God that he is interacting with, um, which I just love as a nice touch either way in terms of uh, the nicety of diplomacy, but also the implicit power and authority that he is commanding in this domain. Um, and I also just note there, no one lets slip that there's any particular knowledge that there are other people he is meeting with necessarily. However, um, I think it, everyone is being very polite on both sides of that. I think everyone is aware that he is meeting with lots of people um, and he is being polite as to suggest that he is only meeting with each group individually. Uh, and uh, each group is, you know, likewise being polite to not acknowledge that they are not being treated special. Oh, interesting, because part of where I made that inference that all the groups are unaware that each each of them is meeting with Dream tonight is that Dream makes a big deal out of summoning them with a floating flame and telling them, you've got to follow this flame and stay only on this path because I can't guarantee that you will be safe in the palace if you stray from the path of this flame, and then having that flame also lead them away. And it seemed to me like he was going out of his way to make sure that people didn't encounter each other, uh, the people who are leaving don't encounter the people who are arriving there. Though, of course, that doesn't mean that people don't, you know, just sort of intuitively understand that obviously everyone's going to ask for a private audience and Dream is going to grant it. Well, and I, I think that he is doing them the courtesy of maintaining the illusion by doing that in part is that the the whole flame and follow it because he doesn't want them to run into each other. And it's also that they're letting it do it. I, I very much thought of this whole exchange this exchange this whole series of panels very much as um like an episode of the west wing uh where <laughs> president bartlett <laughs> needs to do a lot of walking and has to do walking and talking or you know his staff josh lyman is the is the flaming candle who has to walk people in and out of the oval without running into other people and no one is really you know everyone's operating under a certain facade because no one really thinks that they're that special but everyone needs to maintain that otherwise there would be frustration if they did cross paths and have to interact but i also think in some cases um his message of don't stray from the path i can't protect you is kind of a veiled threat too because he is the lord of dreaming this is his the heart of his power is in his castle and in his, you know, off of his throne room. Why couldn't he protect literally everyone here? And I think that that was actually just more a, a polite way of actually making a veiled threat to remind everyone, this is my domain. And as long as you obey my rule, then you have the benefit of my hospitality. But as soon as you cross and, and break any of my rules that I've provided you, then you no longer are going to be subject to the protection of hospitality that you would otherwise, which I think we can revisit in future issues. Oh, oh I in, in no way think that anyone is going to be in any danger if they stray from the path. That's not danger that Dream is visiting upon them intentionally. It's 100% uh, a threat or you know a polite way of explaining the, the rules. And especially, hey, you've got Loki in your house. Right. And so you, you need to make yeah. it clear that you stay in your room. If you're when you're leaving your room, it's only for this flame. And if you try to go anywhere else in my home, I th bad things are going to happen to you. I am going to do bad things to you because uh, it doesn't he doesn't need his helmet stolen again. 
right? And also, he's got the guy who had his helmet here. We'll, uh, we'll talk more about that uh, as we go. Before, uh, before we talk about Odin, though, Brett, I've just got to say, I mean, I think you have hit on an approach to this story that I wish someone would do, which is Sandman colon the West Wing, because I would love to see this whole story from the point of view of the staff. You know, like Lucian in that Josh Lyman role would be perfect. <laughs> like, I need to see that adaptation. It doesn't maybe have to be a whole run, but like, give me an issue like that, uh, kind of a, a lower decks uh, style of uh, of issue. I would love to see that. Yeah, although I think that Lucian would probably be more like the Josh Molina character, where uh, he would uh, <laughs> not speak out of turn as much as Josh uh, tends to. Um, uh, <laughs> I think Marv the Pumpkinhead would definitely be Richard Schiff, though. He would definitely be Toby. Because <laughs> he's just constantly running his mouth and mumbling things. And, uh... <laughs> well, you have definitely hit on a game that we are going to – we're going to record this game. We are going to map <laughs> the West Wing characters onto characters in uh, the Sandman, minor characters in the Sandman. Uh, that's something we're going to do for sure over on Patreon at some point. But let's get to these private meetings here. First up is Odin. And Odin – wants possession of hell so that he and his people, which is to say the Norse gods, can take refuge there during Ragnarok, which is the end of the world, or at least the end of the Norse gods' world anyway. And coming up with a solution, right, a way to save his people is Odin's number one job right now, and he has tried a lot of different things. One of them is a tiny world. Uh, Odin calls this a notional dimension. It's just in a glass globe. I mean, it's basically a snow globe, really. And he uses this to watch a scenario of Ragnarok playing out so that he can have some idea of what to prepare for. It's a kind of computer simulation, essentially. And why this matters to Dream is that somehow this world that he's made in this snow globe has gained warriors that Odin had not created and one of them has a fraction of Dream's own soul inside of him. So Odin will give this to Dream in order to purchase hell from him. Now, we can tell from the art, right, that these new warriors are DC Comics heroes. And so, Brent, I'm just going to let you explicate that for, well, for me and also for our audience. So who are these people? And, and also, is Odin's notional dimension here, is this actually a real setting for other DC stories? Yeah, so it is. Um, so in his little globe, we see uh, kind of three figures fairly clearly. Uh, one is some kind of a giant, which is you know associated with Ragnarok. And then we've got uh, Wesley Dodds, who is in the foreground, um, who was the Golden Age Sandman. And we originally saw him in Sandman number one, where when Dream was captive, there was someone who called himself the Sandman and he used a gun with sleeping dust in it to put villain or villains to put thieves and burglars and stuff to sleep so that he could then, you know, wait for the police to arrive to apprehend them. And he wore a gas mask um, that looks not unlike Dream's helm in some ways. And then we have a Hawkman who's flying in the background. And this is actually making reference to um, a 1986 uh, series, The Last Days of the Justice Society of America special, um, which told of uh, this is Leslie Klinger providing this um, summation, which works real nicely. The Justice, the last days of the Justice Society of America special told of a time-warped wave of destruction that threatened to engulf the universe. Um, and then Leslie mentions the JSA and team – the JSA, including Wesley Dodds at that point, uh, decided that they would enter an alternate universe to have this endless fight. And this is something that uh, DC had done to try to explain – 
where these golden age heroes had been and that they were just in this endless fight where every day they would fight the end of the world. And if they stopped fighting it, then it would be loose on our reality. Well, Earth one reality at the time, <laughs> not our reality, which is a whole other Earth that it's confusing. It's, this is why I asked you this question. <laughs> they're, they're saving essentially reality by fighting in an alternate plane. And as long as they every day have this fight, um, then they will defeat the creature and it won't or aspect or whatever. And in, I believe in the comic Just Society America issue, or maybe I'm thinking of a later Justice League appearance of it, um, it looked more like a dragon to me and less like a giant. I don't know if this was a decision that Neo made given um, Ragnarok being, I mean, I guess there is, I think dragons associated with Ragnarok as well, but also that the that would be the time in which the giants would come to to, to fight the Asir, um, Odin and crew uh, again, um, but for the end of the world. And it was uh, shortly after this issue. So this issue is cover dated May 1991, as we said, in a four issue uh, series, Armageddon Inferno, um, that came out in April 1992, or at least was cover dated that it actually was about the JSA finally escaping this endless cycle, which is an excuse then for DC to take these golden age heroes um, who were active in the 40s and 50s and say like, no, no, now they're in the 1990s. So we can have a Justice Society of America going contemporaneously with the Justice League existing in modern day 1990s America. And the Justice Society of America, for those of you who are not familiar, is something that predates the Justice League. Um, it was, you know, Superman and Batman and, and Hawkman and a number of other floating in and out people of their time. Um, and I believe it was created in the 40s. So it was a lot of, you know, that kind of crew uh, of these original Golden Age heroes. So this is... This alternate universe that I believe may have been even depicted as existing in some kind of a glass globe somewhere um, where the heroes would just repeatedly have this bite, uh, fight was something that existed in DC continuity. Um, I think the idea that Odin was the one who created this to to do models and simulation, um, which I guess is good planning from a warfighting perspective, <laughs> is something that I believe is wholly new that Neil is introducing. I think that it was just that there's this horrible thing that's going to destroy the world. Don't know where it came from was, I believe, the setup for the Justice Society of America comics. Um, and it's only here – that we're getting the explanation of like, oh, no, that was uh, intentionally me trying to simulate something. And they jumped in because they thought they should because it looked like the end of the world. So I'm really good at models and simulation. I'm Odin. Like, <laughs> so it, it, it's a fun bit of intertwining these things. And I don't know. And Leslie Klinger makes no indication as to whether there was any awareness that, you know, the editorial staff particularly might have had that. There was a, this plan in the works for these JSA heroes to make a debut. So I don't know if, you know, a year later this comic came out where we're like, oh, let's revisit that is because they were reminded because of this issue that Neil Gaiman wrote or if it was something that was bouncing around the offices a little bit um, and then just conveniently lined up time wise. Yeah, that's a really cool idea, though. I mean, both the the reappearance with the Justice League, but also just the this cool, you know, this this special issue of the Justice Society of America from 1986 sounds actually really cool. And maybe that's something we can put on our our list of things to check out in between volumes of the, the Sandman. I, I certainly would be interested in looking at it. 
The, the one other interesting thing um, I find about this is that, you know, Odin thinks that particularly Dream would be interested in this, as you said, Glenn, because one of the heroes has a little bit of Dream's essence. And here we are revisiting the idea that, you know, Wesley Dodds decided to don the guise of I'll be the Sandman because I'll have a gun that puts people to sleep and wear a gas mask. That it isn't just that he's trying to take on the appearance of some of behaviors that maybe, you know, through a mirror darkly could be uh, associated with a dream, but actually is in some ways part of an essence of dream. Although then I thought about this um, and I'm curious what you think about this, Glenn. I thought, well, is he in essence as in like, you know, some kind of distilled thing I could actually, you know, scientifically quantify, quantify, or is it that it's an essence as in we're talking about Lord Shaper, we're talking about dream and his domain over ideas. Is it just that the idea of something associated with dream in itself is kind of a part of dream, not maybe in the concrete way that his Ruby was, but at least something. And so any kind of aspect that associates with the idea of dream strongly enough is in some ways part of an essence of dream. I don't know what your thoughts are on that. I think Odin here specifically is referring to a fragment of Dream's soul, but you know what? What are the metaphysics of souls? Is something we've gotten maybe you know a, a little bit on in the Sandman, but not the full picture of it. And other people that we're going to encounter here in these private meetings are also going to offer up Dream you know, bits of himself or or Dream essences, and maybe some of those terms are all interchangeable. In fact, as well, but Dream doesn't really seem all that interested in them. I mean, of course, he's also trying to you know, act as if he's not interested in any of the offers that anyone is is making for him. But yeah, it's not clear to me you know, why this would matter, why this would be important. But everybody seems to think that Dream obviously will want a fragment of his soul or the essence of, of dreams from other people and so on. And it does seem like there is some spiritual substance that is unique to individuals in this world and that it can be broken into parts somehow. And those parts can end up doing their own thing. They can end up elsewhere. They can end up inside of other people, but that you would be interested in getting those those fragments back probably anyway. At least Odin certainly thinks that he would, but exactly how that works is is unclear. I mean, it's, you know, it's mystical. Well, and before Odin comes here, you know, he has a conversation with Loki and Loki says like, look, you're not going to be able to try to trick him in some way. So I feel like Odin is relying on what little he has and this is what he's got. And it's not much maybe, but it's something which is better than, you know, Merlin may have. Right. Um, right. <laughs> so take that Merlin. Yeah. It's unclear to me too, how much the bargaining chip that people have is really what they're offering. Because I do think that Odin's stronger point here is that he and his people actually have a pressing need for a refuge, a place to escape Ragnarok. It's almost as if showing him the snow globe, he's doing that under the pretense of there's some bit of you in this snow globe. But actually what he's really saying is my people are all going to die if I can't get them refuge in hell. And he's really pleading with Dream as one uh, one monarch to another, someone who's responsible for the well-being, the lives of other people to another, and that the the snow globe itself is really actually just kind of a gimmick for him to make that case without appearing to be begging. 
No, I think that's a fair point, Glenn. Um, and in some ways, then I guess Odin's what Odin is trying to appeal to is a similar part of Dream's personality that the fairy folk are through their envoy Clerican trying to do too. Is just like we we're worried about our people. Please help us save our people. Right. It's just right. in Odin's case, it's there's more people, but it's. You know, against the one shot of Ragnarok versus the steady stream of people uh, from uh, the Fair Folk every year. Yeah, I, I mean, something we'll have to talk about is, is you know, we'll do, we'll save it for the wrap up episode. Of course, is which choice we would have made. We can do that once we know what choice Dream actually himself does make. Oh, I also just want to quickly because I don't know that we're going to touch on Clericon again because we he already kind of made his pitch, right? I th- think if. Titania herself had come and made the pitch, it would have probably had more success, um, at least, you know, based on the reception that he's getting in this case, in which, you know, Clericon might uh, have conveyed enough. But it is telling to me that, you know, Odin himself is coming in this case. I mean, we'll, when we talk about um, the envoy from the Japanese pantheon, we can talk about, you know, the the relative low level of power of individuals who are showing up and asking for things. But I think it's telling to me that Fairy sends two envoys. They say they send the Clericon and they send his sister, um, and they offer his sister. But <laughs> it's not that this would have been an excuse if you wanted to to have Titania and or Oberon to come and beseech Dream directly. Um, although perhaps pride from both of them would prevent them from directly doing so. And maybe that's what's at play as well. Right. I think that's actually an interesting way to group up these representatives who, you know, for which groups are the, I don't know, head of state, but maybe it's the best way to think about that. Who, for, for which of these groups is, for which of these groups is the head of state coming versus an, an envoy coming. And and the next group that we've got are, in fact, envoys. They're representatives. This is uh, chaos and order. I mean, they, they come separately, but I'm going to take them in, in tandem. And, you know, for with chaos, right, we've got Princess Jemmy. Uh, she actually doesn't even have anything to trade at all. What she does is make a threat. Uh, Dream doesn't blink at it. And then she gives him a balloon and leaves as if this was all really just a game for her anyway. But then we get Kilderkin of Order after that. And he does have something to offer Dream. This is actually where we get this mention of Dream essences, because it turns out that the Lords of Order have been collecting the Dream essences of the newly dead for their own purposes. But Dream says that he's not interested in this, that if he wanted these Dream Essences, he could easily collect them himself. But I have to say that even if Dream is not interested, I certainly am. I mean, we've speculated about this a little bit already, but really, I, I think I, I'm interested in knowing, Brent, if this is actually something that shows up elsewhere in DC. Like, is this a, a plot point somewhere else in, in DC at this point? Yeah, around this point, there's a a villain called the Gray Man who is um, a servant of the Lord of Order. Um, who he originally was just taking dream essences, whatever that means, uh, from those who were near death. But then he later decided to start taking him from people who were not just near death as well. And Doctor Fate enlists the Justice League um, and Justice League International in order to um, fight the Gray Man um, and defeat him. And that was happening around this time. And this is kind of a fun run of both Justice League and Justice League International, where the comedy was kind of at a nice kind of pitch that I really enjoyed for those particular 
particular comics. I don't always want comedy in my comics, but when I do, <laughs> particularly with superheroes, this is the kind of comedy I like. This is the same Justice League where we're getting em- embassies throughout the globe in various, you know, uh, major capitals. And we get characters like Martian Manhunter, who is, you know, perpetually eating his Oreos and stuff. So this is, we've already seen Dream, when he went to go find out what happened to his Ruby, interact with Miracle Man, Scott Free, and uh, Martian Manhunter in one of their embassies. Um, And so this is kind of that era of what's going on with this gray man. And I believe it's a multiple issue. I don't again. I don't remember if it's just in Justice League or Justice League International. It might be crossing over both. I have those collected somewhere, but uh, uh, but that is an actual character um, and connected Lords of Order. Um, Doctor Fate is also um, differs on whether Doctor Fate is a Lord of Order or um, is empowered by the Lords of Order or a servant of it. It varies depending on the incarnation, but essentially, just uh, Doctor Fate enlists the Justice League. They're loosely affiliated with at that time to help bring down the gray man. And so this is referencing a direct thing that has happened recently in DC continuity. Okay. So, I mean, that's really fascinating then, right? That the first few visitors that we we get to see Dream are, are actually, you know, talking about things that are happening in DC continuity at the time. I, I, I think, well, I'll speak for me anyway, that, uh, you know, although I know that this is a DC comic, right, I tend to think of Sandman as being really its own kind of thing, except for, you know, we've seen Arkham Asylum and some other things. But to think of that as something that exists really only in Preludes and Nocturnes, and then the series distances itself from and sets up its own thing. So it's really fascinating for me here to see that Gaiman, at least, is interested in continuing to bring in stuff that is going on in the the wider DC Comics universe and making it clear to at least people who are, are engaged in DC Comics that this is a part of that story, too. And we've talked about this before when we introduced the Lords of Order and Chaos is that he wanted to bring in something that was DC related and they are a unique thing in at least the way that they're portrayed here. I mean, the idea of the chaos versus order, you know, there's a lot of that that I think probably feeds him his imagination as a young reader from Elric stories, right? But the actual depiction we have somewhat here and well, in his art direction we talked about in the prior issue about how the Lords of Order should look versus the Lords of Chaos should look and what looks like order and what looks like chaos. Like he's got his own ideas about it, but he also likes to occasionally point out when his characters don't care about what's going on elsewhere in DC continuity. So I I like the response that Dream gives here where, you know, he says, look, if I wanted Dream Essences, wouldn't I just have collected them myself? Um, Like it's, it's fine for you to offer this thing, but you're offering something that seems a stolen and then B like, I don't, if I wanted that, wouldn't I just take it? Are you really offering me anything? And to which Lord Killerkin says, fine, tomorrow I'll give a speech, explain, you know, why you should nonetheless give it to us. Well, the next visitor does not actually, I don't think anyway, invoke anything going on in DC Comics. Uh, but this next visitor is Susano Wo from the Shinto Pantheon. And he actually doesn't bring anything. He has no specific bribe here, but he does essentially give Dream a blank check. He offers to pay whatever Dream wants. And the deal here is that he and the other Shinto gods are 
no longer worshipped the way that they once were, but nonetheless, they have been adapting. And what they've been doing is assimilating other pantheons, uh, which is to say later gods and new altars and icons. That's that's what the text says. And he gives some examples of these. And so these include Marilyn Monroe, King Kong, and Lady Liberty. And I mean, I, these are gods then? Marilyn Monroe is a god in this speculative world? King Kong is a god in this speculative world? What do you make of that, Brent? Well, they're either gods or they're at least mythological creatures. And this reminds me a lot of – this is another instance in my mind where Neil Gaiman is kind of setting up the rails for ideas that he will visit a, with a lot more ferocity in his American Gods book. Right, where we've got this idea of if something is kind of worshipped enough, then at least even if Marilyn Monroe is not the god itself, it is an aspect of a god in some ways. Or you know, there's there's a mythological role that Marilyn has that is not just that of an actress, right? And same with King Kong in some way, in terms of it's King Kong is more than just the movies that where it's dubbed King Kong, because there's obviously lots of other um, kind of places we've seen King Kong. And I think, you know, specifically mentioning King Kong in Japan, I think we've seen, you know, King Kong fighting Godzilla, but we also see King Kong essentially as Donkey Kong, right? So to me, this is waving at Nintendo, at least in my mind. And what's going on there is acknowledging kind of the assimilation of like taking the idea of King Kong and then putting it in something that Japan then packages and sells worldwide to great success. Ah, uh, yeah, that's an awesome insight. I didn't think about it in those terms at all. But I mean, that's clearly the word that he uses, right, is assimilating, assimilating other pantheons. And it does seem like what's happening here with, you know, Marilyn Monroe and, and Lady Liberty as well is that Gaiman is commenting here on Japanese economic power and and also the the cultural appropriation of uh, specifically really American culture by Japanese businesses. I hadn't been thinking about Nintendo, but King Kong is a, a great one. I don't know if the copyright on King Kong was sold to a Japanese firm the way that actually Marvel Comics right sold the screen rights to Spider-Man to Sony, for example, but it feels like perhaps that is a thing that happened and that in general, this is some kind of comment on Japanese economic competition with the United States and and Europe here. And certainly, I think in the 1980s and even the early 1990s, seeing uh, heavy Japanese involvement in Western pop culture. Uh, I think that's a great that's a great observation. And a lot of it is reminiscent of particularly like mid and late 80s. I remember, you know, growing up at that time, there were a lot of discussions, particularly in American pop culture, of the role of Japan. Um, some of those even went, you know, so far as to being, you know, pretty racist tropes regarding, you know, Japan and their, you know, business acumen, but yet it not being strong enough. I'm thinking of, um, uh, Gung Ho, the film with right. Michael Keaton. Yes. <laughs> um, which, you know, has some great moments to it and as a comedy, but also is a very problematic film in a lot of ways. Um, but kind of this depiction of Japan as something that, um, will kind of assimilate and, you know, economically, you know, uh, take advantage of stuff. 
and again, there's a lot of negative connotations there. I think that some of the positive connotations are, are that we have the Shinto deities who have managed to change themselves to suit the environment that they're in, and they no longer necessarily need the worship that they once had to nonetheless still find themselves to be powerful entities in the world by taking advantage of changing circumstances, which very much I think is the story of post-war Japan after the rebuilding um, is the ability that it had to transition itself and really make uh, itself such a strong market force uh, worldwide. Um, there were some setbacks that then followed um, that in the period of the 90s, but still the Japanese economy is relatively strong um, to this day. Yeah, I think this is spot on, Brenton. In fact, even just looking at the page, thinking about, about your insight here, I noticed that the way that he describes how great their underworld is, is to use the word efficient. And so he's he's really actually even presenting their underworld with this this business language, right? The thing that makes our underworld great is that we uh, uh, we keep our costs down and we sell our product for as much money as we can. And so to be looking at this this sort of move into business uh, from the even the the Shinto gods, I think that's that's a really interesting way to think about yeah post war Japan and also just contemporary uh, international business and international politics as Gaiman is writing this. We, we should also note here, just in thinking about describing the Shinto underworld, Susanna Wo does say quite clearly that they have their own underworld and that it has nothing to do with hell. It is, uh, it is not a part of hell, but that they would love to use hell to expand their own underworld. And so I think this is really the last bit that we needed to fully understand the relationship between hell and the, the other underworlds in these other mythologies, these other religions. Well, Brent, we've got two more to go here, and Bast is next. And what Bast is offering is the location of the missing member of the Endless. This is the lost brother who we have seen referred to as the prodigal as well. And Bast knows this. She knows where this brother is because she is a cat, and therefore she knows whatever cats know. And this includes this missing brother's whereabouts. Now, this definitely feels like a thread that is going to matter in the future, the way that you know, Gaiman has now included this twice in Season of Mist. And I know we don't want to say anything spoilery, but perhaps you want to comment obliquely on that, Brent. There's a couple of great stuff going on with this bass scene because, first of all, I love that he starts looking a little bit like a cat. He doesn't make himself fully into a cat, which Bast remarks on. But we also have this idea back to A Dream of a Thousand Cats about things that cats know that, that other people don't. Um, and the fact that wherever the prodigal is, is apparently within sight of a cat is uh, fun. Um, and as someone who is a cat person – does not have a cat, but uh, is a cat person. Uh, it's fun to imagine whoever this is, is someone who has a cat around. I don't think we would imagine that there would be a cat like hanging around Dream all the time. We don't see anyone hanging around Dream all the time, right? And we see Desire is maybe fittingly alone most of the time, um, except for when they don't want to be alone. And so we don't see any of the other Endless who would be in sight of a cat frequently enough. Um, so this is kind of a unique thing that um, – Whoever this, you know, person is now, at least, if not who they were, um, is someone who would be in view of a cat. 
Yeah, I mean, it does certainly suggest that the the prodigal here has a cat, and I don't know. I mean, that's something that perhaps we'll be able to verify at some point. So I don't know. We could start a a betting game about that or something. But I do wonder: is is Bast? You know, you know, when she's talking about this power that she has, does she mean only house cats, or you know, are we talking like big cats and mountain lions here as well? I would assume all cats, um, just because I'm thinking about a thou- Dream of a Thousand Cats and the idea that, you know, even when the cats were great and big, um, that, you know, there there's some element of the f- felineness of them. And I think if we were to look at at least our, you know, uh, what, what fragments we have of understanding Bast as a figure mythologically, um, they – a lot of it was associated with house cats, but I don't know that it was limited to house cats, right? If there were other kind of cat species that were encountered by Egyptians, I assume that they would associate those with Bast as well. I would assume so as well. And, and frankly, I just don't know enough about the biological history of you know the type of cat, the species of cat that we now think of as the house cat or the domesticated cat. But of course, they were some sort of wild cat at some point and were really what uh, and really were the the type of wildcat that was hanging around you know the the Nile right and so yeah our our lynxes and and bobcats right is this is this included there or not yeah I I would I would think so I I'm gonna say I'm gonna say yes but perhaps this also is something that we'll be able to to verify or not later well let's get to what is probably really the main attraction here the last of these private meetings finally we get Azazel. And I mean, this is going to be a serious business gut punch here. And so it's it's last for a good reason. And Azazel makes a speech about how properly belongs to the demons, but Dream cuts him off, tells him to get to the point. He's making it really just a kind of a political speech. And that's awesome. And the point, though, the point that Azazel is coming to is that he has two things to offer Dream. And, and by things, he means people, really. And First is Karanzan. This is the demon whom Dream had to fight in order to recover his helm back in Preludes and Nocturnes. Uh, we skipped over a scene earlier in which Merkin, the mother of spiders, seduces Karanzan as a, a way of capturing him. And so right now he is wrapped up like spider food and he is ready to be delivered to Dream for, well, I guess whatever purpose Dream wishes, really. And then the other person here, I think probably matters more, although to be fair to Dream's character. We have certainly seen Dream be petty and vengeful before, but at any rate, the other person is Nada, who is, of course, the whole reason that he went to hell in the first place. And all of that is the carrot. There is also a stick here, though, as well, which is that if Dream does not accept this offer, Azazel will personally consume Nada's soul. And that's it. That's that's the offer. This is the end of these private meetings. And this one in particular, I think, is a lot for Dream. And then the final scene of the issue is Dream sitting on his throne, mulling all of this over. He's alone. And then he tosses the key away from him. And then finally, he laments that it is not really actually quite that easy to dispose of this key. And so really, the ending to this issue, I think, is is, is broody. That's, that's the way I would describe it, is broody. And we've got five panels of him throwing the key away and then having to walk over and retrieve it um, in 
the panel that follows. Uh, and originally, Leslie Klinger notes that the script uh, had dialogue in the last panel of the comic. Um, here, it's just silent, and Dream is looking back over his shoulder, uh, partially shrouded in darkness. But apparently in the script, there were captions that uh, had Dream saying, I cannot, I wonder what the morrow will bring. I think it works better to not have it there. I think it's kind of implicit that we know that the next day is what's going to happen in terms of the Mara will bring. And the I cannot, he's already kind of covered that with, I, I wish it was this easy, but it's not. Um, I don't think we need to necessarily footstomp that. I guess the noting what tomorrow will, what the Mara will bring makes it imply that he, or conveys the understanding that he still hasn't decided what to do. And he's maybe waiting for some other information that he's still with all that he has learned from all of these, he still is waiting for some other bits. And maybe, you know, that speaks in favor of those who like Kilderkin said, I'll, you know, tomorrow make a statement as to my righteous, you know, why I should have it. And so, you know, the next issue, if we are going to get a lot of speechifying from everyone where they're publicly, as opposed to the private audiences, publicly making their cases, um, maybe one would sway him, but I, I don't know that it's necessary at all. No, I agree. I think it was the right move to get rid of that line there as well, for all of the reasons that you have outlined. And, you know, I think something that this scene really conveys, right, is Yes, obviously, Dream has not made up his mind yet, but it also conveys to us without in any way explaining to us that there are serious stakes here, right? That it's not simply, as Azazel states, that Dream has a thing that he didn't ever intend to acquire and that Azazel has the thing that Dream did intend to acquire. And so it seems like a real easy trade because Dream shouldn't care at all about the key. But we're seeing here clearly that Dream is taking this as a very serious responsibility and that he needs to put this responsibility, this duty, this this station above what he would want personally, or at least thinking that maybe he ought to do that. We'll find out what choice he makes. And certainly we can speculate a lot more about this in the wrap-up episode about, you know, what might actually have been the consequences if Dream had done, you know, I don't know, three or four different things than he actually did do. That might be a fun, a fun game to play in the wrap-up episode. I mean, as you're talking about this, Glenn, I'm thinking about it a little bit more right here. I'm wondering if in some ways, for Nada's sake, like Taking Azizel's deal is the way to go right now. It seems to be the take that I would have. But thinking about his relationship with Nada and the fact that he was being played with by desire and so was operating rashly and just trying to do what he thought was best for him without thinking about the effect on anyone else, particularly Nada, in some ways maybe he's learned from it. To the detriment of Nada, because, you know, if he's being selfish, then the response right now would be like, yep, that's what I wanted. Here's the key. Let's get out. Let's be done with this. Um, I've alleviated myself of the burden. I've equated stuff back to exactly how I thought things were going to be when this started, except for, you know, Lucifer's not there, but whatever. That's not my problem. But instead, he is removing himself somewhat of what he might personally kind of emotionally want from the equation, seemingly, and trying to do what is right in a more cold and calculating way, which is not maybe for Nada's benefit, but does show that he's learned to not be the rash, terrible, kind of far too selfishly uh, pitch things the way he was before. 
And I don't remember if at the end of all of this, we're going to get another interaction with death, which has really kickstarted all of this, right? Is, is death saying, actually, yeah, Dream, you, you're, you're kind of a jerk to Nada and you should do better. You should find a way to make up for that. And we'll, we'll have to see if death checks back in to assess the extent to which Dream has, uh, has done that successfully or not. But that is getting ahead of ourselves a little bit, I think. So let's, uh, let's move into talking about the cover and, and the, the title or you know, the descriptive text, the synoptic text of the, the, the issue that we get in our favorite panels. This cover, this is an utterly abstract cover that I have no idea what to do with, Brent. There's a, you know, a clear image of the key to hell here, but then the centerpiece is a series of connected shapes. Is it supposed to be a, a, a dream catcher, which were, were super popular in the early 1990s? It might be. And I hadn't thought of that, Glenn, but I think my headcanon will probably make that be that it is at least an attempt at a dream catcher, but it's kind of made of thrown away bits of things, or it's some kind of overly complicated machine that has either been broken down or it needs to be rebuilt perhaps. And maybe that's what's going on is that like the apparatus of the cosmology that involves hell has broken down in its absence, which we saw the consequences of partially last issue. Um, and here, you know, Dream needs to figure out how you put these things back together and all he's got is, you know, the shape of a key and a fish that may or may not be alive for very much longer and like a shell with some fun patterns. But like, how does any of this actually make the, you know, the cosmos move again, right? I, I don't really know. Well, do you want to do us the honors here, Brent, and read this uh, synopsis for us and we can talk about it? So the uh, the subtitle of this issue, which again that's just titled "Seasons of Season of Mists," chapter number five, is in which a banquet is held and of what comes after, concerning diplomacy and bedrooms, blackmail and threats, and an unusual recipe for sausages. Yeah, that that last line that's that's a bit that's a bit cruel. The sausages are are able. That's uh, that's that's how the sausages are are made. It's uh, it's fratricide, and uh, yeah, also you know not a huge part of the of the issue. But this is a great way, I think, to sum up what is happening here. The banquet probably should have been calling it the banquet throughout instead of dinner party. How pedestrian of me to call it a, a dinner party, I guess. But <laughs> yeah, we get diplomacy in bedrooms. I mean, that's that's certainly right. There's some uh, there's some sexy bits there between uh, Karanzan and uh, and and Merkin there with the the spider webs the and so on. Yeah, the queen of spiders, right? And we also then get uh, we do get blackmail. We do get threats as well. Well, and we get, you know, Thor who hopes for sexy times in the bedroom with Bast, but instead ends oh, yes. up uh, <laughs> uh, naked and drunk uh, with Loki sitting on his back in whatever the chambers are that uh, the three Aesir are residing in. But yeah, although I think regarding dinner party versus banquet, I think we should just start using the word banquet more often, Glenn, is that uh, uh, where we reach a point where we are having, um, at the time we were recording this, still um, – very much kind of a COVID time. But in the time we're in the future where we're having people for dinner parties, uh, we should refer to them as banquets, perhaps. I mean, I think definitely it, it has been literally years at this point since I have had a meal with anyone outside of my own household. So the the time I'm able to have anyone over, a friend, neighbor, whatever, it's going to feel like a banquet. So we might as well all start calling them banquets, I guess. And the recipe of sausages, which, I, you know, it's, as you remarked on before, it 
sticks out there. Um, and I guess you don't want to see how the sausage is made. Um, I think it's humorous when you see it on the cover of the comic before you read it. And then it's very dark and twisted when you then find out about it. Right. Cause it's, you know, thinking of diplomacy and sausage. Yeah. It's something else. Yeah. It, the, the dark humor of that was I think a bit disturbing. I also think that, Thor's drunken lechery was didn't didn't age as well as some some other some other elements some other of the some of the other humorous elements have but still all in all I really enjoyed the heck out of this issue but we're not done with it we've actually got to pick favorite panels as well uh, what was yours Brent there was a lot of panels I really loved because um, there was a lot of fun excuses throughout this issue for Kelly Jones um, and the other artists working on it to depict particularly how Dream himself decides to appear with each of the guests. In addition, we, we mentioned that his throne room alters a little bit. We mentioned that his facial features change somewhat. I did want to give a shout out to, um, but when he meets with Princess Jemmy, it's just him essentially in jeans and a t-shirt because that's the level at which you would deal with, um, you know, a four or five-year-old girl who is wearing dress-up clothes is like, you'll just appear like um, a, you know, kind of exhausted parental figure. But in a one of my favorite issues of Sandman, with wonderful art that I love throughout, one of the, I think my favorite panel is the one where it's actually, the art is doing seemingly less work until I thought about it a lot more, which is in the interlude between Dream's visit with Bast and his uh, conversation with uh, Azazel, um, he is left alone in his throne room, um, holding that balloon that Jemmy gave him. And Matthew comes and visits because, of course, Lucian sends him. But that first panel of that uh, page is, is what I think my favorite panel is, where uh, Dream is sitting on his throne holding the balloon. And he says, Matthew, what are you doing here? And Matthew says, Kirk, hi, boss, which none of the dialogue matters to me. What I love about this is. We see Dream, who is not well-defined. His face is not, you know, particularly well-drawn, um, again, intentionally so, on a massive throne, but he is very small relative to it. Um, and he is kind of holding this balloon very in my in my headcanon absentmindedly. Um, and I think it, this is where we are actually seeing Dream, not as he needs to appear diplomatically in front of any of the guests, but how he actually feels in the moment, which is very small with lots of responsibility kind of all around him. And, you know, that throne looks really uncomfortable. You do not really want to be him at that point and worry about what weighs on his head. And this balloon, again, it's not adding cheer so much as, you know, a juxtaposition with the enormous weight that he has all around him. So I, that is my favorite panel for this issue. I love it a lot. And again, it's not the thing that I'd actually want to frame and put on the wall anywhere in my house relative to... I don't know, 50 other images we have in this <laughs> comic, but in terms of what it communicates in the power of the story, um, when I took the time on my reread of this, I really love it. And I think it's really well done. I think it was really smart to put the level of detail that was put where it was put. And also the, it was almost like jazz. It was the notes you didn't play. It was the, the lines that were not drawn, um, which also helped make it great as well for me. 
The scale of this is really interesting. This is the same throne that he's sitting on when he's talking to Bast. It's the same outfit as well that he's still wearing. And we actually see it again on that same page. The last panel on this page down at the bottom right is a silhouette of Matthew flying off with the raven. Dream has stood up from the throne. And so then we see the throne empty. And that gives us a sense of scale of the throne in that moment. And in that moment, it's much smaller than it is in the panel that you're talking about. And it's also much smaller than that panel when he's on it, when he's talking to Bast. And so I think that your reading of this as the the room shifting uh, in response to Dream's emotions, at least in terms of size, is is spot on. I mean, that's a that's a great analysis. It does also just look really cool. I mean, it's meant to look vaguely Egyptian here. It's you know got some it's, it's sand colored. It's got lots of uh, ancient uh, pottery. Uh, it's only lit by by candles here. It has some tapestries as well, and it's sort of meant to evoke a kind of generic feel of of ancient Egypt. And and I just in general like you enjoyed the way that his his throne room, his quarters here were were shifting based on the guests that he was receiving. Uh, what was your favorite panel? Well, I chose the very first panel as my favorite, though, like you, I thought the art in this issue was just all around spectacular and I could have picked almost any panel, but I picked this one. And this is the wide angle establishing shot that has the silhouette of Dream's Palace in the, the center of the background. The palace is just solidly black with yellow windows. Uh, that's to show us that there are lights on. This is actually just something I'm kind of a sucker for. I, I love this type of nighttime city depiction. But I also love the mysterious hooded figures in the forest on the other side of a lake that are right in the foreground. I mean, we know that that's Clericon and Nuala, but you know, you could just look at this in an art museum and not know any of that detail. And you would just think, oh, this is 19th century German romanticism here. I mean, you know, like it's a romantic panel with a, a, a big R there. It also, to me, feels very much like its own kind of story prompt. Like I look at this this panel and just think there are a hundred stories, a thousand stories you could tell to explain what's going on here. And that's the kind of exercise that uh, I, I enjoy doing. I mean, I think most people who enjoy dabbling in, in writing as a hobby like that sort of thing. And I've been trying to find some time to uh, take that up myself. Yeah, it's a great one. Uh, before I comment further, though, I have to say I was tempted to put money down that your favorite panel would be the half page panel of Bast and Thor sitting next to each other at the uh, table <laughs> uh, with uh, poor um, Bast having to suffer, uh, Thor explaining his hammer, um, and with the great depiction of their eating styles of nothing else, where uh, Bast has a very tasteful uh, rodent of some kind with a fruit in its uh, yes. <laughs> mouth, uh, and there is no mess at all around here, while Thor just has spilled at least two goblets of wine, ripped apart some bread, what's left of uh, some kind of a foul creature, whether it's um, as in some kind of a bird, whether it's a chicken or a turkey or a pheasant or some dream, you know, turducken monster of fusing a bunch of things together. I don't know. But uh, but the panel you did pick um, is a great one. And for all the reasons you noted, it – it's a great story prompt. It draws you in right away. Um, and speaking of drawing in, uh, you know, 
two issues prior when the guests started arriving. At first, uh, we were told that the castle was up in, you know, we even saw it was up in a mountain. It was hard to get to. Um, and then later when he realized like, no, he can't keep hiding from these people. It was seemingly more at ground level here. It almost seems inviting ominous. Maybe there's a lot of horror stories where this is the, the establishing shot, but also it does look like the kind of place where when it's kind of dark and maybe a little cooler out, certainly not warm, there's a lot of lights on. It's it's a little bit of a walk, but not much of one. And that looks like a place that whether you're signing up for a horror story or not, if you're a traveler, you might as well go knock on the door and see if they'll take you in for the night. And so I think it works well as an establishing shot. I think it also shows kind of the mood that at least Morpheus feels he has to be in relative to accepting guests versus where he was the beginning of two issues prior where the castle needed to be something that was not at all welcoming. Well, I think we know for sure that we're going to be in the the castle, the dream palace again next issue as we get the the public speeches and and also I think the final decision on what to do with the key to hell. So I have not looked ahead, Brent, but uh, I will be excited if we get another establishing shot for the palace (laughs) and it looks different yet again. And then actually just thinking about about that, whether or not we get any more, just thinking that we've had two already here. That would actually be a fun thing that I would love to hang on my wall would actually just be kind of a a series of these types of shots that we get of Dream's Palace to just have sort of one big print that shows you the way that it has morphed, you know, from issue to issue over the whole run of the series. I don't know if that's a thing that exists, but uh, if it doesn't, uh, someone, someone should do that. Someone should do that. That would be great to see a collage of Dream's um, kind of castle because it's never a one for one. There's never a bit where it's just like, okay, well, this tower is now taller. It's just like, no, that tower literally didn't exist before. And, and there was a different tower, but you it's clearly a different tower. It's not that like it's just like grown or reshaped or anything. It's, it's very much a different creature depending on what it needs to be and even changes as we talked about multiple times in one issue, it can change. Um, and in some ways, even like the gate and the path up to it, I'm not even sure it looks the same. It's even the same place in the second panel as it is in this first panel that you've, you've picked. No, <laughs> no, I think that's totally true. Well, I think now that we are dreaming up our own art, which presumably is housed somewhere itself in Dreams Palace, I think that is going to do it for this episode. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brent Helt. You can find us and our other podcasts at claytemplemedia.com. If you would like to support the show and the whole podcast network, we'd love for you to check us out on Patreon at patreon.com slash claytemplemedia. We'll be back next month with Season of Mists Chapter 6. And until then, pleasant dreams. <laughs>